If you, uh, parent, grandparent, work around kids, babysit, whatever, have you ever had this moment where you're, you're hanging out with your kids and you're just having a moment and you're bonding and then they look at you and sneeze right in your face? Uh, that's me this week with my kids, and so uh, you'll have to bear with me a little bit this morning. Woke up with a pretty uh, gnarly cold, so if I stop making sense, it's the day quill, I promise. Or if my voice just gives out, we'll just roll with it and figure it out. Um, January 2013, this guy was looking for a job. He was a computer programmer, and he applied to this rather large company and got a job as uh, one of their high-level computer programmers. He was excited. This was a high-paying job. And uh, he gets into this new uh, work environment, gets acclimated. And his supervisor noticed, man, this guy's work is, is excellent. His computer code was some of the best in the company. And so quarter after quarter, he would have some of the best work uh, progress reviews of, of anyone in his team. And so they, they began to compensate him accordingly. And uh, this guy was making you know, well over $200,000, significant amount of money. Until one day, uh, some of the IT department, they become aware that there's maybe a, a hack in their system from overseas. Somebody had been logging into their system uh, from Asia somewhere, and so they're concerned that they have this glitch in the system, that they've been hacked, and so they start going into uh, damage control mode. And come to find out, this programmer that they had hired, he took that $200,000, took $50,000 of his paycheck, and outsourced his own job overseas. And so he hired somebody else to do his job for him. So he wasn't invested in the job. He didn't really care. He, he wanted to do just enough work to manage to get the, the paycheck, but he wasn't invested in the process. He wasn't committed to the company. And, and so long story short, obviously they fired him, right? Wasn't committed, wasn't invested, didn't find value in the company, wanted to do just enough to skate by to get that big paycheck. And I tell you that story because I think it raises this question about what does commitment look like? What does it look like to be decisively invested in something, right? And my concern is that for some of us, when we think about our faith, when we think about following Jesus, is that we want just enough Jesus to get by, right? We, we want just enough Jesus to make our life more convenient. We want just enough Jesus to get us out of hell, but not enough of Jesus, not enough of a commitment decisively to follow him to ask anything of us. Right? I, I don't want to have to submit or surrender my life or my agenda to, to Jesus. If he could just make my life more convenient, more simple, better, that, that I want just enough. And yet when you come to Philippians chapter 3, Paul says precisely the opposite. He encourages the church at Philippi, go all in on Jesus. Forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. And so as we get to Philippians chapter 3, it's really this question of are, are we going to be decisively committed to following Jesus? So let's recap this a little bit with where we've been. In Philippians chapter one, we talked about this theme of identity. We talked about how first and foremost, we are a holy people to live a set apart life to follow Christ. We talked about how our identity is that we are servants to serve God's plan, God's purpose, God's priorities. In Philippians chapter two, we talked about what does it look like as the body of believers to find unity in Christ. And not only to have unity in Christ, but then out of that, we live as a transformed community. We demonstrate in flesh what the gospel looks like as we live with a, a, a cross-like mindset of just like Jesus laid down his life on the cross and was submitted to the will of the Father. Paul says, have that same mindset in your relationships with one another. Philippians chapter three, last week, Pastor Dave uh, brought us to this place of recognizing we are called to a real relationship with God. Right? When we talk about having a relationship with the God of the universe, this is a real living relationship through Jesus Christ. 
Now, as we finish Philippians chapter three this week, I I want to draw us to this place where, yes, we're called to a real relationship with Jesus Christ, but we're called to go all in to be decisively committed to a pursuit of him. So what does this look like? How do we decisively commit? How might this change and transform our lives? Let's dive into Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse one. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it's we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were my gains, were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him at his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So again, the big idea in this passage of of Philippians, Philippians chapter three, is that what does it look like to be decisively committed to the ways of Jesus? Right? And, and this is where Paul brings the church at Philippi to. He encourages them to go all in on their life with Christ. And, and as Paul uh, makes his argument here, you'll notice in the first part of Philippians, he describes life in Christ. And in the latter part of Philippians chapter 3, he describes what it looks like to live as enemies of the cross. So in chapter 3, Paul contrasts these two ways of living. Here's what it looks like to live aligned with the word and the truth of Jesus Christ. And at the end of Philippians 3, he'll say, here's the contrast. Here's what it looks like and what it means to live as an enemy of the cross of Christ. And right central, right in the middle of Philippians chapter 3, is Paul's call to the church at Philippi to be decisively committed, to be invested, to be all in on life in Christ. So let's begin to flesh this out. Let's define life in Christ. For Paul in Philippians chapter three, as he defines life in Christ, he he gives us three things. He says, life in Christ looks like serving God by the spirit, boasting in Christ, and putting no confidence in the flesh. And so Paul, with with this argument, begins to lay out a new and very countercultural way of living for the people at at the church at Philippi. So let's dive into Philippians chapter two, verse 
chapter three, verse two, and look at how Paul begins to develop this argument. Philippians 3, 2. Here, here Paul begins with what, it, what is a warning to the church at Philippi. He wants to get their attention. He begins with these words, watch out. Now, this doesn't come through in the English translation, but in the original language, Paul actually uses this word watch out three times. He'll say, watch out for those dogs, watch out for those evildoers, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. And, and when you read this, did, did you notice, I mean, Paul uses strong language. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. I mean, I can't think of a time I've ever written a letter and thought, I'm going to incorporate the phrase mutilators of the flesh, right? But, but you get the sense that Paul is burdened by something that he wants the church at Philippi to get. And what he wants them to grasp is he says, watch out for this kind of teaching and doctrine that is not about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So as, as he continues writing this out, he says, watch for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Verse three, he says, because for it's we who are the circumcision. Now, what, what, what's all the talk about circumcision, right? Which sometimes when you think about talking about circumcision at church, it, just, it feels odd, right? Why, why talk about this? What does Paul mean? Well, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham to the people of Israel. And this covenant, a covenant is a promise, a commitment where God says, listen, Abraham, I will be your God and you and your descendants will be my people. And so there's this moment in the Old Testament, Genesis 17, where God and Abraham, the people of Israel, they enter into this relationship and God says, I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to care for you. You will be my people. I will be your God. Now, God gives Abraham a sign. He says, this will be the sign for all future generations. You will be marked in the flesh in the act of circumcision. And this will be the sign for you that you are set apart, that you are living and walking in obedience to the covenant promise. And to live in obedience to the covenant promise was to uphold the Old Testament law. You do everything that is written to do and you don't do everything that's written not to do in the Old Testament law of Israel. And your sign that you were faithful to this was being marked in the flesh with the act of circumcision. Now we come to the New Testament and when Jesus arrives, it says that Jesus fulfills the law. We no longer live under the law. We no longer have to walk in obedience to the law. It has been fulfilled. And instead what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is transforming us from the inside out. He's writing his law on our heart. And so literally we are made new. And so why the law of the Old Testament could describe, here's what right living looked like. The law could never empower us to do that. In the New Testament, Jesus transforms us and changes us from the inside out, removing a sinful heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh that is open to the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. And so here in verse three, when Paul says, it's we who are the circumcision, what he means is for those of us who are walking in Christ, remember Philippians 1, 1, he's writing to God's holy people. He is writing to believers. He says, if you have faith and belief in Jesus Christ, later in chapter three, he'll say, he'll say you have a righteousness, that comes through faith. He says, now the new mark of belonging is not the physical act of circumcision. It is a life of faith in Christ Jesus in which you trust Jesus with your life. And so for Paul, as he says, it's no longer about the law. It's about life in Christ. He's trying to warn the church at Philippi, don't ca get caught up in this movement that was happening at the time that said, it's Jesus Christ and the law, you have to do both. Paul says, no, 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 we're not under law. He says, if you're walking in Christ, you, you are walking in faithfulness to the covenant. And then he says, here's what this life in Christ looks like. He says, it's we who are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit. This is one of the key marks for Paul of what this life in Christ looks like. And this is substantial. 
For Paul, he says, if you were walking in Christ, but a few verses later, he'll call a righteousness by faith. You're walking, you believe, Lord, I've submitted my life to you. He says, you are empowered by the spirit to serve God. And and this is a high calling considering that in Philippians 2 that we read a couple weeks ago, Paul tells the Philippian church, he says, y'all's attitudes in your relationships with one another should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And Paul says, you should have that same attitude. You should have that same mindset. And I look at the example of Jesus in Philippians 2 and I go, well, how could I ever walk in obedience to that? In Philippians 3, Paul says, we we serve God. We live in submission and surrender in obedience to his word, not because of anything we do. We serve God by his spirit. And church, here's the beautiful truth is that when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God resides in us and God empowers us to live and to walk according to his truth. And so where the Old Testament law said, do this, don't do this, good luck. In the New Testament, life in Christ, the spirit of God lives and resides in us. And God himself says, not only am I going to call you to righteous living, I'm going to empower you by my spirit and grace you to do the things I call you to do. And the beautiful hope of the Christian faith then is that we are transformed and changed from the inside out. And so when we talk this morning about being decisively committed to the ways of Jesus, When we talk about being fully submitted and surrendered to the ways of Jesus, I'm not talking about trying harder. I'm talking about an attitude and a disposition of humility that says, Lord, my life is yours. Would you empower me by your spirit to walk in your truth? So Paul says, we serve God by his spirit. And then he says this, he says, we we boast in Christ Jesus. Now there's this question, what does it look like to boast in Christ Jesus? And I'll help define this by looking at the opposite. To think about boasting in the flesh is to say, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've built with my life. I've got gifts and talents and I took all those things and look at all of these things that I've accomplished. The opposite of that, and then if we're gonna boast in Christ, is not to say, look at all the things I've accomplished. It's to say, look at all the things that Jesus Christ has graced me to do. Look at the grace of God in my life. Look at how he's changed me and transformed me. To boast in Christ is to draw attention, not to who I am and what I've done. It's to draw attention to Jesus Christ and the power and potential of his transformative purpose and presence in my life. And and this is coupled with Paul's third thing. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh, right? So he gives really clear definition. Life in Christ, we serve God by the spirit. We boast in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. And I think this last one is hard because we live in a culture that wants to put a lot of confidence in the flesh. We live in a pull yourselves up by by your bootstraps culture. If we work hard enough, we can do or accomplish anything. And yet we see Paul saying, I don't put any confidence in the flesh. And as he writes to the church at Philippi, he says, likewise, as followers of Christ Jesus, we don't put confidence in our ability to do and achieve and accomplish. We place our confidence in the power and presence of God to work in us and through us, to transform us and change us, to make us a new people from the inside out. So what this looks like, Let's get practical with this. As a pastor, I often talk with people who are in a season of difficulty in their marriage, right? And often they come to me and they say, what, what tools can you give us to help us get healthy? To which I say, well, well, start telling me about your relationship. Start telling me about your walk with Christ. And often one of the things that I discover is that faith has been pushed to the periphery. 
And what I'm so adamant about is you can't have a healthy marriage unless you put transformation in Christ before tools. You see, tools are only helpful if your heart has been changed and transformed. And so when we talk about putting no confidence in the flesh, this is true in every arena of life. Right? If you, if you want to step into marriage in a way that is uh, faithful to God's word, ways, and wisdom, we have to be first and foremost a transformed people that says, Lord, I need your grace to help me love my spouse well. Think about parenting. We just had family dedications yesterday where we had 14 families make a declaration to say, our children, we want to raise them up in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. And if you're a parent, you know this little secret. We have no idea what we're doing, right? And for me, what I've noticed is by by the time I learn the phase that my kids are in, they're already well into the next life phase, right? And I'm I'm going, wait, wait, wait. I just learned how to parent you here. Now now we're headed towards middle school and I got to figure out how to parent a middle schooler and I don't know how to do that. I'm not equipped for that. But church, I I need the grace and the power and the presence of God to help me live and love my kids well and lead them well by his grace. And what I've noticed in my life is, if I'm honest, what I would like is comfort and convenience I would like things to be not too difficult. And God does this annoying thing where he keeps calling me into things that I feel really unqualified for. He keeps calling me into things that I go, God, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to hold this. I don't know how to manage this responsibility. And he goes, that's right, because you were never meant to. How about I manage it with you in my power and presence of the Holy Spirit? You don't have to do it alone. Don't put confidence in the flesh. Trust and submit and surrender it to me. And I think that's true of all of our lives, that God is consistently calling us into places and into seasons of life where we go, God, I don't know how to steward this. I don't know how to manage this. I don't know how to be faithful to this. And it's because we were never meant to manage it on our own. We are not called to do life with a confidence in our own ability, but to trust God's provision and his grace. And, and, and I know sometimes along this point, I'll get some pushback to say, yeah, but I mean, I, you know, I got an education and I've worked really hard and, and I've done all of these things to which I say, who graced you with your intellect? Who graced you with your health? Who graced you with the background that you came from? Who graced you with the opportunities that you've had to step into these new roles and new positions in life? And really, church, when we recognize the core foundation of all of it, we don't do any of it. It's all by God's grace. And so Paul, as he writes to the church at Philippi, he goes, be decisively committed to this because we serve God by his spirit. We boast in Christ, not in ourselves, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And so for Paul, he says, when you do this, this will radically transform your priorities. So as Paul continues writing, he says, it's we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, boast in Christ, no confidence in the flesh. He goes, though I myself have reasons for confidence. He says, if someone else thinks they can uh, have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness by the law, faultless. Paul just gave you his resume and pedigree. Paul goes, you think you have reasons to boast? He goes, I am born to uh, the right clan of Israel. I I was a Pharisee. He's educated. Paul had it all together. And then Paul says this in verse seven, but whatever were gains to me, I consider loss. Whatever was to my profit, I consider loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so this is a reprioritizing moment for Paul, right? It's not about what he's accomplished. It's about life in Christ. In fact, Paul says, everything that I've done, at one point he says, I consider it garbage. 
Now, Paul's not saying it doesn't matter. He's not saying that's not important. He says, but when you compare it to knowing Christ, what you find is that the core priority in life is to know Jesus, that we were designed and created to be in a relationship with him. And yet we spend so much of our time and energy and investment pursuing things that are not of him. And so Paul's not saying achievement and accomplishment is bad. He's saying, but reprioritize it. Let that be secondary to life in Christ. So with that, number two, Paul encourages the Philippian church to be committed wholeheartedly to life in Christ. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Let's look there. This is where Paul, again, he's encouraging the Philippian church to commit wholeheartedly to life in Christ. So as Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, here's what he tells them, beginning in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or if I've already arrived. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so here, Paul tells the people at Philippi, he says, listen, I haven't arrived at spiritual maturity. He goes, I'm still pressing into Christ. He says, I I, I strive to take hold of Jesus, recognizing that Jesus has first taken hold of me, right? So listen to what Paul says. He says, I press on to take hold of Christ. He says, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, straining towards what is ahead, I press on. So notice how Paul builds this argument. He goes, I'm pressing on, I'm straining towards, I'm pressing on. Paul wants to press home to the church at Philippi. You need to pour your life into this. Jesus Christ is not a secondary thing. Paul says, I am pressing on, persevering in my pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ more intimately. He says, I'm straining towards this. Now for Paul, he's not saying this is by works. No, no, no. Paul makes it very clear. He says, it's Christ Jesus who has taken hold of me. It's the grace of God that has gripped me. And Jesus called me into salvation with himself. But to strain towards this, Paul says, I'm making this a priority in my life. I'm making a pursuit of Jesus Christ a core part of how I I expend my energy in life. I am decisively committed to this. And as he writes to the church at Philippi, he encourages them. And likewise, he encourages us to press on in faith, to strain towards, to press on. He says, to know Christ. And two, right in the middle of this, I'm struck by the the fact that Paul says, forgetting what is behind, we strain towards what is ahead. In other words, Paul says, you need to let go of your past. And, And I think there's two components for this. For Paul, this means letting go of good things, right? He accomplished a lot in his own. He accomplished a lot in the flesh. And Paul goes, I'm letting go of those things, surrendering them to Christ, Forgetting what is behind, I strain towards this next season of life that God has called me to be in faithful obedience to him. So part of this looks like a reorientation, again, of our identity. For so many of us, the things that we have achieved and accomplished, those are the things that define our identity. They define our worth. They define our value. And so when I talk about forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm not saying they're important. What I'm saying is reprioritize towards Christ, press into him, strain towards him, make him the chief priority of your life. You are no longer defined by your achievements and the things that you've done. You are defined first and foremost by life in Jesus Christ. 
For others of us, forgetting what is behind means we need to let go of sins and patterns and addictions that have held us in bondage and they've defined us in a place of brokenness and woundedness and, and we can be set free from those things, leaving them in our past and pressing towards new life in Christ. Who you were before Christ is no longer who you are after Christ. And for some of us, there are things that are part of that former way of life that we need to let go of, that we need to leave in our past as we press towards life in Christ. As Paul continues writing, in fact, he he will contrast life in Christ with what he calls living as enemies of the cross. Let's look at this contrast for Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. It's always weird to take a drink with a bunch of people watching you. I'm sorry. I know my voice is getting kind of froggy, so thanks for, thanks for sticking with me. All right, so for Paul, there's this contrast, right, to life in Christ. What he defines or calls living as enemies of the cross. Let's go there. Philippians 3, 17. There, Paul encourages the believers. He says, join together in following my example, right? Again, he's calling them to unity. You notice throughout Philipp- or the book of Philippians, he's calling them to unity. He says, brothers and sisters, just as, as you have us for a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Verse 18, I want to emphasize this. He says, as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, right? This, this is really important for Paul. He is, by what he's about to say next, he is burdened by it to the point where he has shedded tears out out, out of a deep concern for the church at Philippi. He says, I tell you again, even with tears, many live, as he says, as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he defines it and he uses three key distinctives, just like he did with life in Christ, only these are the contrast. He said, for those who live as enemies of the cross, he says, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. So here's the key question. What does it mean to live as an enemy of the cross of Christ? This means to live in a a way that is opposed to the ways of Jesus. This means to live in a way that is in rebellion to the words, ways, and wisdom of God. Particularly in the context of Philippians, Paul told us in Philippians 2, he said, your attitude should be like Jesus who was willing to submit to the will of the Father, even if that meant going to the cross. And so to to live in the way of the cross is to live with total submission and surrender to God the Father. It's to live in total submission and surrender to the way of Jesus. It's to live with the the humble attitude and disposition of a servant. And yet now in, in Philippians 3, Paul says, I tell you again with tears, many choose to reject the ways of Jesus. And he says they live as enemies of the cross, rejecting that way of submission and surrender to God, rejecting that attitude of humble disposition of a servant, and they choose to live in opposition to that. And listen to how Paul describes them. He says, those who reject the ways of Jesus, he says, their destiny is destruction. What, what, what does this mean? I think it means two things. Number one, when we reject the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus, it leads us into a way of living that is destructive in the here and now. Right? And we live in a culture that says, do what makes you happy. Live your version of truth, whatever that might be. Do the things that make you happy. Can can I tell you that's one of the worst lies that we've been sold? Because not every way we choose to live leads towards flourishing. The way of flourishing is found in the way of Jesus, right? Jesus in, in John 10, he says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullness, that you might find flourishing in him. And yet our culture says, no, 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 no. 
Live your version of whatever makes you happy. You have the freedom to make whatever choices you want. And we've been sold the lie that total freedom to do whatever I want means total happiness. But it doesn't. There are a lot of things that you can choose that lead to a destructive way of living. And when we oppose the way of the cross, when we live in opposition to the ways of Jesus, it leads us to a way of living that will be destructive for us right now. Secondly, though, their destiny is destruction. This will be destructive in the life to come because when we reject the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus, we become subject to the judgment of God and eternal separation from him in hell. Do do you understand that while Paul says, I'm writing this again with tears in my eyes because so many people oppose the way of Jesus thinking that that's what's going to bring them happiness. And yet Paul says that way of living leads to destruction. And so Paul is writing to the church at Philippi saying, pour your life into Christ. It's we who serve God by the spirit. We put no confidence in the flesh. We boast in Christ Jesus. Live this way because to live as an enemy of the cross is to head in the way of destruction. And Paul so badly wants the people at Philippi to get off the road of destruction and to live in the ways of Jesus. Next, Paul says this. He says, their God is their stomach. What does he mean? I think Paul is describing here a group of people who are driven by their appetites, their physical appetites. And again, I think we live in a culture that says, whatever you're craving, do it. You want to have sex? Have sex outside of marriage. You want to have sex? You don't even need to have sex outside of marriage. You can engage in pornography. Both of those things will lead you towards a place of destruction that are less than what God intended for you. And yet we live in a culture that says, whatever you're craving, go for it. You want to overindulge in food? Great. You want to overindulge in drink? That's your prerogative. But no, Paul Paul says, do not live in this way in which your physical appetites become the thing that drives you. Our, Our stomach is not, our physical body is not meant to be the thing that we worship by giving it whatever it craves. It's to be in humble submission and surrender to the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. And Paul says, as this builds, he says this group of people, he says their glory is in their shame. So Paul says there's a, a culture of people who have rejected the ways of Jesus. They are living as enemies of the cross. He says their, their God is their stomach. And now when he says their glory is their shame, what he's saying is there's a culture that finds glory in doing things that are not of Jesus. There is a culture, he says, their glory is in their shame. They're they're living in a way that fills them inwardly with shame, and yet they're finding glory. And look how I'm living. I'm living in in blatant opposition to the word, ways, and wisdom of Jesus, and I find glory in it. I'm proud of the ways that I'm living in opposition to Christ. And Paul is writing to the church at Philippi going, don't get deceived by this. And you see this contrast between life in Christ, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh with this contrast of those who serve the flesh, their God is their stomach. For those who live as enemies of the cross, their destiny is destruction. They actually find glory in the things that God has called them to reject. And Paul is urgently calling the church at Philippi and church, I believe, urgently calling us today to be a people who are decisively committed to the ways of Jesus. three reflection questions for you. Number one, where is your trust? I think when you read Philippians three, it's this question of where am I placing my trust? And and there's a temptation to place trust in myself and what I can accomplish. And yet Paul says, I consider everything I've achieved garbage compared to knowing Christ. And I think there's this urgent, if we're going to live committed to the way of Jesus, it's to say, I'm not putting any confidence in the flesh. Lord, I trust you. 
Secondly, it's this question of what do you want? What do you really desire? I'm struck by right in the middle of Philippians 3 and verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And I'm struck that right in the middle of this letter, Paul goes, I want to know Christ. I desire to know him. And, And as I read this again, I thought, do I desire to know Christ that way? And I think what a powerful prayer. I want to know Christ, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That, that, that's a hard passage to pray. I, I want to know the power of the resurrection, but I don't want to share in the sufferings of Christ. And yet Paul, deep down his desire, I want to know Christ. And third, where's your mindset? In Philippians 2, 5, Paul says, in your mindset with one another, have the same, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. In 3.19, as Paul describes those who are enemies of the cross, he says, but their mind is on earthly things. And notice right after that, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul says, don't let your mind get so focused on earthly things that you forget that first and foremost, you are a citizen of heaven. And Paul is calling the church at Philippi right here, right now, to live out the culture of heaven right in the place where you, God has placed you. And church, the same is true of us, right in your workplace, right in your family, right in your neighborhood. Live out the culture of the kingdom of heaven as those who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Live in that countercultural way as a citizen of heaven right here, right now, and living in a countercultural way, we might bear witness to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And practically, I think this looks like saying, Lord, everything I have, everything I am, everything I do, I want to do it in obedience and submission to you. And suddenly when you go to work on Monday, you're saying, how do I do this for the glory of God? How do I live as a citizen of heaven right in my cubicle, right in my office, right on the assembly line, right on whatever your workplace is? How do I do this as a citizen of heaven that points people to Jesus Christ? And I want us to begin to think about this differently. If my citizenship is in heaven, how does that change how I live? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of Paul's word and the radical life of submission and surrender that he calls us to. And God, on the one hand, this can feel intimidating. And yet I love how Paul says that we serve God by the spirit. We, it's not about trying hard enough to measure up. It's not about our works. It's not about bringing enough effort to it that we prove ourselves to you. No, I think it's a life of flourishing in which your spirit empowers us to walk in conformity to your word, to your ways, to your wisdom. So Father, I pray that we would be a people who are decisively and radically committed to the ways of Jesus. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.